joined in the Auckland studio by Hayden Donnell for Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, good evening. Kia ora, Karen. Let, let's start with Sky News suspended from YouTube. Yeah, so just to catch everyone up on the details, late last week Sky News Australia was suspended from YouTube for publishing COVID misinformation and they'll be off the platform until tomorrow in the unlikely event that they get two more strikes or breaches of the platform's policy in 90 days, they'll be booted off for good. Gosh, what did they do? Uh, Well, it's hard to say exactly, but they broadcast misinformation on COVID-19. A YouTube spokesperson said uh, that the videos violated their policies. Uh, They said, we don't allow content that denies the existence of COVID-19 or encourages people to use hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin to treat or prevent the virus. Now, Sky News denies it ever did anything irresponsible, but... Uh, some would say that insistence is a little bit dubious. So here's a snapshot of what they have broadcast in the past, collated by our friends across the Tasman Media Watch Australia. Why are Jones and Kelly so sure our governments have got it wrong? Because these two self-appointed experts have looked at England's official COVID data and decided the Delta strain is not really dangerous. See the right-hand column for Delta? 0.2% case fatality. 0.2% fatalities put the Delta strain on a par with the average flu season. So that's Alan Jones talking about the Delta strain. That's, of course, completely false. The Delta strain is actually pretty much as deadly as any other strain of COVID. It's just not killing people at such a high rate in England, where he was talking about, because nearly 90% of their population has had at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. And that's, of course, not the case in Australia or New Zealand, where it's going to be a lot more dangerous. Uh, So that was just one of a series of false claims that Jones and his guests and the independent MP Craig Kelly made during that segment and several others, all of which they're not really worth broadcasting again. Uh, This all comes in the context, of course, of a COVID outbreak in Sydney in New South Wales, which has killed 17 people, including a man in his 20s overnight. It's interesting that YouTube can't prove what was said or, you know, don't have a list of it, but they've taken them off anyway. I'm not sure that that it's that they can't prove or that they don't have a list or that they're just not divulging exactly which videos it was. One thing that has happened is that Sky News Australia has deleted a whole bunch of past videos which suggested hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for COVID-19. So possibly it's that one. That's obviously a direct breach of the YouTube policy. I see. Okay. So what's your take on YouTube's stance? Oh, heroic YouTube. No, absolutely. They deserve no credit whatsoever. Of course. Sky News is... Sky News Australia's YouTube channel has grown from 70,000 subscribers to 1.85 million in the last two years, which is higher than any other Australian media company. And it hasn't, of course, you might guess, this will, this will shock you, Karen, but it, it hasn't done that by because YouTube's uh, prioritised factual content which edifies the audience. Uh, the reason that Sky News Australia... You, I knew you'd be shocked. The reason that it is so big and so dangerous in the first place is because YouTube, despite its protestations to the contrary, still seems to prioritise engagement and what it algorithmically recommends to viewers. So, as The Guardian notes, this is true of Sky News Australia, uh, the more extreme the video, the more popular it is. Uh, it's engaging. That's why Sky News is so big. So Hate. Hate's engaging. Yeah, hate's engaging. Conspiracy theories are engaging. Increasingly polarised 
political echo chambers, they're engaging as well. And that's what you get when you do prioritize engagement. YouTube's taken a bunch of steps to try and, I guess, tamp down on misinformation, but they haven't exactly been wildly successful. And you might remember the Christchurch terrorist was partly radicalized on YouTube via videos. Its algorithm kept feeding him. And it's one of the most powerful radicalization engines in the world. A bit underrated in that sense, because we, we talk about Facebook all the time, but actually YouTube is a, a prime culprit. I've got a question here. Karen, can Hayden tell us if Fox News has been suspended from YouTube or any other media outlet other than their own? That's from Ian. Uh, no, 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 this is the only one that I'm aware of at the moment broadcasting. But this is the thing, actually. Fox News has broadcast a bunch of very close-to-the-line COVID misinformation. It would be helpful if we knew exactly what videos they were targeting with Sky News Australia because it could just be that hydroxychloroquine. But, of course, Sky, um, because of course Fox promoted that pretty heavily back in the day as well. I wonder if those videos are still up. You're right. This could probably open up a little bit of a can of worms for some of these more outrageous uh, conspiracy-minded channels. Thanks for that question, Ian. You can text on 2101. But Hayden, Sky News broadcasts in New Zealand, of course. Yeah, it does. It broadcasts on Sky TV. Now you think, oh, that's because they have the same owner. They don't. They're not actually um, linked. But it does broadcast on Sky TV. Uh, And there could be questions about whether that's really a reasonable broadcasting decision, uh, particularly to air its opinion shows like the Alan, Alan Jones in particular. Uh, We have a lot of the same vulnerabilities as Australia from a potential COVID outbreak due to our relatively low vaccination rates as well. And, of course, broadcasting vaccine misinformation, making those rates even lower, could be, I mean, it's not exaggerating to say it could be potentially deadly. It would, on the face of it, seem unlikely, but... In this case, is social media maintaining higher standards than a mainstream media company? Yeah, we've seen we've seen recently uh, media companies complaining bitterly about the lack of standards on social media and uh, the fact that uh, this is actually undermining shared truth. The fact that we're not having our facts mediated to us through. Uh, honest brokers at media companies. Uh, So I guess it might be a little bit on the nose to see that actually a mainstream media company is broadcasting information that's too dangerous even to go on YouTube. And actually it was been broadcasting it straight into Australian homes and New Zealand homes for for a long period of time. So, I mean... Maybe that's unfair. Most of our media companies have actually been really responsible with their COVID reporting. Uh, There was one notable exception. Of course, Magic Talk host Peter Williams spent a few hours indulging vaccine misinformation on his show and then the next day encouraged people to go visit the website of a large anti-vax group. It was early on in the piece, though, in his defence, It was earlier this year. Earlier this year. I mean, we had COVID for a year before he'd done it. I I, I guess the vaccines were still a little bit new, You think he'd do it now? I think that probably, and I'm just speculating here, but there might have been some sort of uh, urging or advice from above him not to do that anymore. But uh, mostly, I think we've seen pretty strong factual reporting mixed in with some robust pro-vaccine commentary from our leading broadcasters, including Seven Sharp's Hilary Barry. Uh, Here she is on the show recently talking about a BSA judgment involving her. Um, Do you remember, you probably don't remember, um, 16th of February, I said that anyone who doesn't want to be vaccinated 
might like to consider jumping on a ferry and going to the Auckland Island for a few years, and then when we've got rid of COVID-19, they could come back. Well, I thought that was fair enough. And apparently so did the Broadcasting Standards Authority. (laughs) So she had a complaint. She had a complaint, and of course the BSA found that those comments about the Auckland Islands did not breach the standards of good taste and decency, discrimination and denigration, balance, accuracy and fairness. So, well, that kind of thing, is that that whole incident is a little bit funny, and it was kind of played for laughs by Hilary Barry, fairly enough. Uh, it's actually also a relatively important decision from the BSA, because what it indicates is that its view is that the science on vaccines is settled. They do work. And there's a segment in its judgment where it says, media doesn't have any obligation to provide a different view on vaccines to provide balance, so-called balance. Media is obliged to provide balance. It doesn't have to because the science is settled. Uh, good to have that clarified. That also applies to climate change, by the way. Interesting, too, because Seven Sharp, it's, it's a vaguely news show. Should I put it that way? So yeah, can she, she can have an opinion, can't she? Yeah, it, it's an entertainment news show. What is that? What's that? There's a particular term for that. Infotainment. Infotainment. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. I, uh, that was eluding me. Uh, yeah, and, and it does involve, I guess, a little bit of opinion, opinion but it does still have to adhere to the BSA guidelines. Yeah, and on those topics, that's important in the times that we find ourselves in, obviously. Yes. Um, and so we're on to another media ruling, and this time by the courts. Yes, the High Court has issued an injunction against RNZ, our station, for using hacked patient data from Waikato DHB in its news story. So RNZ had used the data that was hacked, uh, in a story about a child who was in the care of Oranga Tamariki. And in a decision released today, the court restrained RNZ from accessing stolen data without consent and ordered it to permanently delete any data that it does have or copies that it has in its possession. And does that tip into the realms of journalistic freedom, do you think? Yeah, well, this is the question. This does come in the context of, like, newsroom being pursued through the courts for, I don't know if you remember this story, for its coverage of an Oranga Tamariki reverse uplift where a child was taken off a foster family and given back into the care of family and a child's right to privacy is at the heart of that case as well. So in that case, Newsroom is pointing out that the video was in the public interest and that it actually provoked pretty, um, well, important action from the minister, Calvin Davis, who instructed his staff not to carry out any more of these reverse uplifts. And RNZ ran a disclaimer basically making the same public interest argument when it chose to run the story, saying it had taken care not to... uh, reveal any identifying features, that kind of thing. And that's fine. There was very little identifying detail of this child and the story did have a strong public interest aspect. It provoked a lot of discussion. Uh, But the choice to broadcast this information is more borderline, if anything, than even the newsroom decision. So as Justice Churchman said today, there are strong arguments that it's not in the public interest to breach the confidentiality of private personal data that was stolen And equally, there are concerns that publishing any information from this hack actually empowers the people behind it, right? Because it makes the people that were hacked, in this case Waikato DHB, more aware of the consequences. It makes the consequences more dire because the information that's hacked has now become public in a way that uh, might be damaging to them. So that might make them more likely, or other victims more likely to pay a ransom, which ensures the hackers are more likely to offend again. So actually, this is a case that 
for instance, Deborah Powell of the Resident Doctors Association made uh, to RNZ's morning report on May 26, after some of the hack data was released. You know, from the point of view of the media, having received the stuff but not using it, um, that will help immensely because the confidence of the staff to carry on, the pressure on them uh, not being as great because that information won't be released, that will help. That will help a lot. Deborah Powell from the Resident Doctors Association talking there to Katie Scotcher and RNZ has referred the email to the police and digitally confined the information which we won't be publishing. So that's Susie Ferguson of Morning Report at least tacitly agreeing there with Deborah Powell of the Resident Doctors Association. That was back then, this is now. Things have obviously changed. Now finally I can, I want to say that I can appreciate what it must feel like if you are a patient of Waikato DHB and you've seen that in another person's case their hack data has been used uh, for a news story. And that that must feel a little bit less safe than a media organisation just issuing a blanket ban on publishing anything from the hack. Uh, Because now we're in a position where it's not just a rule that your data isn't going to be used, but where the media organisation is now going to be applying editorial judgment and asking whether it's in the public interest. And you're probably fine. But it must feel a little bit nerve-wracking, particularly if your data is highly personal, private. And (laughs) as we've seen from Sky News and others, now Morning Report has a much better track record than that, I think. But editorial judgment isn't always going to be flawless. Uh, text here from Rehana from Port Charles, who perhaps does not agree with your comment about Morning Report. It's called, this is about the Sky News mm. story, it's called Freedom of the Press. Uh, Radio New Zealand is all infotainment, Rehana says. Well, I uh, appreciate that. I appreciate that you, <laughs> you think I'm so infotaining. And Jeff from Coromandel says, wow, let's have opaque censorship by Facebook to keep us all informed and with the mainstream narrative. There are real concerns about these tech companies being the arbiters of information, but at the same time, I think we have to consider that their huge megaphones are doing real societal harm. And if they're left unchecked and there is nothing, there's no controls on them, no standards, like the media has the BSA and we have the press council and we have various codes that we sign up to. These are now in the place of the media. Uh, you know, if, if these if they have no standards and no checks, then really we've seen what the results can be. We've got QAnon circling, circling the world. We've got uh, racist <laughs> hate groups that have just sprung up because people have found communities around those ideas. You know, yeah, I, 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 can, I can appreciate the press's case that actually, you know, having some standards and having some people that are judging whether an inf- whether information that's getting out there is of some quality and worth, that's a useful thing. Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant in response to a text. I've got other topics to cover. MediaWorks, that's your other main topic to cover. And they released their less than favourable culture review today. That would be an understatement. Yeah, a very a big understatement. It was actually harrowing and... I mean, we knew that this review from Maria Ju QC was coming out and the reporting around it before it even came out indicated that it might be pretty confronting, but it was pretty tough to read uh, all in a row in print. What what's some of the key findings? So the big thing, there were six allegations of sexual assault. Uh, these are serious incidents with potential criminal implications and the police have urged any victims to come forward. 
Can I just ask what the time frame? They've said there's was? no time. No time. Oh, frame. sorry, on the sexual assault. So four of them were from the last three years, which was the um, time frame that the review covered, and two were what they called historical, so just outside that time frame. Uh, and so, I mean, those are the that's the big headline, but the rest of it really it describes what could only be described as a pretty toxic culture, um, and a lot of that was around what the staff called a boys' club uh, culture or a boys' club mentality. Uh, there's just this idea, one staff member, member put it this way, there is an inner circle and females don't get let into that circle. I mean, there's other staff members that reported sexist comments. We've got apparently one manager saying, only hire hot, referring to female applicants for roles. And uh, boys, this is why you don't hire mums. I guess that's uh, might there might be the same person there who said don't hire a female as she'll get knocked up in five minutes. So there seems to be uh, a bias against women because they might get pregnant, which is actually illegal. Uh, respondents also reported repeatedly hearing derogatory terms, now the sexually explicit terms uh, used in the office, and there were actually allegations of racial discrimination and racist language as well. One staff member reported hearing a senior executive talking about why a station wasn't getting many commercial ad bookings, and he said that that's because brown people don't have any money. And this is just a snapshot. There's more, there's more, there's more. Oh, and by the way, the company's gender pay gap is 18%, which is nearly double the national average. It only employs 6% uh, of its staff are Māori. And, of course, Māori make up 16.5% of the general population. Only 3% of its staff are Asian. They make up 15% of the general population. So, yeah, those are some of the worst things. And I believe there, there was a, an entire segment of the review which was devoted to one very shocking incident that happened not that long ago, late 2019. That's right. So a lot of these incidents are kind of described in brief under sort of, I guess, in themes. Uh, this one gets its own section, which is devoted just to laying out exactly what happened. And it involves a 19-year-old who won a radio listeners contest and went to a MediaWorks promotional event with a bunch of uh, company staff. Uh, she got highly intoxicated with alcohol supplied by the MediaWorks for the event. Uh, she says that she can't remember much past 6 p.m., but uh, several MediaWorks staff members reported seeing a senior staff member more than 20 years older than this woman engaging with her. That's the terminology. And... Then uh, they were a little bit, or they, it says that they they were concerned about what was happening, but they didn't intervene. Now, later that evening, uh, what was described as sexual conduct happened between the woman and that senior staff member. The woman woke up the next morning distressed. She went to police. She sought medical attention. Uh, her uh, And she confirmed what had happened with the senior staff member himself. Now, her father lodged a complaint with MediaWorks chief executive at the time, Michael Anderson. And after that, the employee was briefly suspended while the company carried out an internal investigation, but he returned to work. Uh, and apparently the investigation included there wasn't even a written report. Maria Drew QC says this wasn't really investigated properly. There wasn't a written report. There was just a verbal conversation between senior managers where they said uh, the offence wasn't worthy of termination. Uh, the woman had had a meeting where she received an apology, but she wasn't notified of the outcome of her complaint. Uh, the man returned to work. Uh, she was never informed, and she's experienced un ongoing psychological harm as a result and is still in specialist counselling. And the employee involved told Maria Duke, you see, that he regretted the incident, but he denied any criminal conduct.
Well, that must leave questions to answer, not just for that person, but also for the senior executive team. Yeah, exactly. There would be questions there to ask about Michael Anderson and the senior executives who were involved in investigating that, whether that was truly uh, proper accountability for the for the man involved. And that's a theme that runs through this report, that there wasn't proper accountability for anyone, that, or there were for many of these people, these men that actually... Um, bullied uh, people or sexually harassed people, there wasn't proper accountability and, and there wasn't consequences that made the staff feel like if they did the same thing, then there would be consequences for them. And so there's questions to be asked about that management culture. Uh, and there's a pretty damning section of the report that I actually haven't seen highlighted elsewhere, but Maria Jukusi talks about a few... She said nearly everyone she talked to talked about some toxicity in the culture, but some didn't. And uh, the only people that didn't, she said, were generally MediaWorks managers who decided that the people who were complaining soon just weren't cut out for the industry. And uh, she wanted to <laughs> acknowledge that those people might have some difficulty accepting it's a problematic culture, but it was a problematic culture. Wow, uh, I would like to read that report, having worked at MediaWorks for quite some years, yeah. uh, just to see what's in it. Um, and just just quickly, uh, RNZ ratings way down in the latest survey. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to make a little point about this. It might seem like I'm running interference for the company, but uh, RNZ's ratings went down 100,000 in the last uh, survey, GFK survey, and there's been a bunch of commentary around that, and there's actually been a couple of columns by Newsroom, shout out to Newsroom, uh, one of which pointed out that the government had encouraged RNZ to up its weekly audience targets and be more ambitious, and so it uh, upped its targets to 680,000, up from 650, and it's now 80,000 down on that. Uh, now, the, th the thing with all this about RNZ's failing when it's not getting its audiences is, uh, I mean... Honestly, I don't understand why ratings are the key measure of RNZ's success, <laughs> Karen. I mean, to me, it would seem the primary purpose of this station is that it can do stuff that commercial radio can't. It isn't beholden to mass market goals, and it can broadcast problems that appeal to uh, programs that appeal to more obscure audiences and cater better to ethnic minorities and Māori and play music that wouldn't fly on ZM or The Rock or whatever. And none of those things are necessarily populist plays. They're not bringing in, hoovering in the audiences like like News Talk ZB to hear us tonight, Karen. But, I mean, pushing those hefty audiences goal, audience goals and measuring performance by reach seems to maybe sit uncomfortably with some of those other things that RNZ can provide. And surely one of the better measures of its worth is actually whether it's fulfilling its charter, which is actually meant to be its main purpose, catering to all New Zealanders, providing meaningful content for audiences that aren't well-reached, like, for instance, youth Youth Radio, Māori, Pacific, uh, younger people that we're not catering for properly. And, uh, you know, providing meaningful content that isn't being well served up by the commercial stations already. And I would say that those things are at least as worthy a part of uh, assessing its value as just raw audience numbers. Because you can get raw audience numbers in a whole heap of ways and not all of them are good. You'll be reporting to the boss's office first thing in the morning. <laughs> this is the last you'll hear from me, guys. That's right. Uh, this text says, Karen, I regularly listen to several MediaWorks radio stations. Let's hope they don't adopt a similar culture to RNZ as those stations would become tediously boring. <laughs> Why are you listening now? Yeah, oh, listening. Uh, what's happened? Uh, Why are you listening now? That's right.